our classes. We're going to get started. My name is Steve Joe. I'm the site pastor here at our joint ministry at the Highway Palo Alto and the Palo Alto Church of Christ. And today we are gathered for the second week of Advent, for the second week in which we prepare for Christmas, the celebration for the arrival of the Messiah, the Savior from God into, into world and into history. So as we do that, let's just pause and take a moment and pray together before we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for week number two of our time of waiting, um, of the time of waiting of the advent of your son, of your, your plan to restore and rescue all of us, re rescue history, rescue the world, rescue your creation. We ask that, again, that as we journey through this story, we would hear it fresh, um, a very familiar story. We pray that you would help us to hear it new and give us new perspective on our lives, on what the world is, and on what it means to be a follower of, your, of the Messiah. We ask that we would step through the process and go through it fully, especially this morning, which is, a, which is a, the difficult side of the, the, the process of waiting for the Messiah. And we ask that you would help us to do that faithfully and honestly and, and joyfully as well, because we know you want to give us freedom. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So as I said last week, we're journeying through this um, time by looking at uh, five, really four-ish songs of Advent. And last week, we looked at Zechariah's song, which, as we saw, was a song of hope which broke the long silence of waiting, both for Zechariah as well as for Israel and for us. Before the song, before Zechariah's song, Israel's prophets were silent for 400 years, and the Jews were left in bondage to empires, waiting for the leader God promised, the one called the Messiah, who would lead them to freedom as a nation and into ruling the entire world on God's behalf. And this week, we come to the reason behind the elderly Zechariah's song of joy and hope, which was, of course, as we saw last week, the birth of his only son, John, who would become John the Baptist. So John was born last week, and in the week's time, he's grown up into a man, and he's ready to fulfill his role as one of the prophets foretold would come to prepare the way for the Lord to save Israel. So before we get into John's story, which is what we're going to talk about this morning, let's pause and ask yourself a question. Have you ever thought about why it was so important for someone to go and to prepare the way for the Messiah? Prepare the way for the Lord. Um, if you've spent any time in the, in the scriptures, in the New Testament, you see that scripture devotes a lot of time and text to John the Baptist as the one who prepares the way for the Lord. I mean, why, think about this. Why, why, why do you think that's so necessary? I mean, Jesus is God. Why can't he just sort of swoop in and, you know, do the thing he needs to do and then, and then be done? Why is preparation so important to receive the Savior? To answer this question, we're going to look in the story of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, and it, it picks up in chapter 3. So let's, uh, let's read into it. And this is there's kind of a lot going on in this passage, so kind of hang with it. It'll pay off in the end. So this is, how Luke, this is how Luke tells the story of John the Baptist. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etruria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, not Texas, Abilene, Abilene, uh, which is a different city, um, during the high priesthood of Annas, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. All right, so let's pause here. Luke starts the story. He begins the story by listing all these names of various people who ruled over Israel, like Caesar, of course, Caesar, Tiberius, the deified emperor of the Roman Empire, 
And these regional puppet rulers, these various guys that read, kind of ruled in, in, his, in his image. Um, and then Jewish high priests, which of course, they were also in bed with the Roman Empire. So Luke is doing this for a particular reason. He's doing this on purpose, as we've seen often in Scripture. Scripture is very deep and complex. There's a lot going on. And he does this because he's trying to set John the Baptist's story squarely in the middle of the tense undercurrent which existed of political, religious, and economic conflict in Israel as it still is today. So this, this situation John the Baptist enters in, there's long simmering anger and frustration festering amongst the Jews. John the Baptist arrives in a world, as we talked about last week, where the Jews are waiting, have long awaited for God to send his anointed one, the one called Messiah, to come and rescue and save the Jews out of the oppressive rule and domination of Rome. So that's the setting. Luke continues with what John did in his ministry. Let's continue with verse 3. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. As it was written in the, words, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation." So Luke here is making it very clear that John the Baptist is the one who was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah that the prophets spoke about here. And this is from Isaiah 40 and in Malachi 3, the last prophecy before the 400 years of science. John the Baptist is the one. He is the one sent to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, before we move on, that phrase, prepare the way for the Lord, is a really interesting phrase in this context. In this time and culture, when a king would go and visit a city... Um, literally, people would go and, to be sent to prepare the way for the king. And what this meant was literally they prepared the way. They did road work. They literally went and they straightened out the roads. They flattened it out. If there was roads that were crooked, they made it straight. They leveled it out. If it was, there were road, rough roads, they'd smooth it out. They'd plant nice flowers around it to make it look nice, all to make a comfortable and pleasant ride in for the king. And so this phrase, prepare the way for the Lord, this is John the Baptist's job for, uh, for the, the Lord. But he doesn't do it by doing road work. Instead, he prepares the way for the Lord by preaching a powerful message to set crooked roads straight. And what was his message? Looking back again in verse 3, John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. This is what he did. He preached this message of repentance. He called people to repentance. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. Now, repentance, as we all know, means uh, acknowledging guilt or remorse or shame for something that you've done or participated in, as well as turning away from that, ceasing to do it, participate in it, towards something better. So John was telling the crowds, and he gathered large crowds around him to repent. This was his message, to acknowledge their wrongdoing and sin, both as individuals and as a people, and turn away from that life and instead return to God. This, he says, is important because repentance prepares the way for the Lord to come. Now, how does repentance prepare the way? What is it about repentance that prepares the way for the Lord to come? Again, you know, God, why can't God just come? If we're, even if we're unrepentant. What is the connection also between repentance and the return of God as the king? So understand this, we need to know something about how first century Jews thought about repentance and forgiveness. 
It's really important how, that we understand this. Now, remember from last week, and we said it earlier, that Israel's under this, you know, under foreign rule and oppression uh, from the Roman Empire, and they've been under the rule of many empires before then, the Greeks, the Persians, and before that, they were in exile. They were exiles in the land of Babylon. They were, they were conquered by Babylon and forcibly deported um, in, out of their homes into slavery very far away from the homelands. Why did all this happen? Why did this happen in the Old Testament history? The prophets make the reason very clear. Israel was sent into exile and placed under foreign rule because of their collective disobedience and infidelity to God. It was a punishment. Despite repeated warnings, they did not obey God's command to rule as a just society, which was kind and compassionate to the oppressed, remembering that they too once were the oppressed. And instead, Israel became oppressors. Also, Israel built political alliances with, uh, with surrounding nations. And as a result, they brought in and started worshiping other gods and idols and other religions instead of being faithful to the one true God alone. So... They were sent into exile. And this is important. And so what this means is that for, is, for, for the nation of Israel, for Jews in the first century, forgiveness would come as part of God's rescue out of, out of exile and oppression. Because it had meant that their punishment had come to an end. So that's important. When Israel thought of forgiveness from God, they thought of being rescued by the Messiah out of Roman rule. And being let, being set in the place where Israel would rule the world. This is a little bit different than maybe how we think about it in terms of our own personal guilt. Now here's, just to make it really clear, here's a slide. So here's kind of the thing that's going on. Israel rebelled, so they were sent into exile. And then later, the idea is when God forgives Israel, then Israel is rescued out of exile. But here's the thing. For this to happen, for God's forgiveness to be complete and do its work, and then thus bring Israel out of their oppression, John is saying that they must prepare for it through repentance. Repentance. And so the equation kind of looks like this. Repentance. Why? Because forgiveness cannot complete its work without our repentance or Israel's repentance. What do I mean by that? Now imagine you, you know, somehow out of anger or whatever, wrongly and unfairly, uh, decided to say something to a friend that really hurt their feelings, that offended them deeply. And despite that hurt, you have, they're great friends, they decide to forgive you. And they decide, let's, let's let the past be in the past, and, and they love you, and they want to move on. Even though you've offended them, they forgive you, and, and they want to move forward. Now, that is a beautiful thing for your friend to do for you. And it's very good for your friend's own heart and soul that they can kind of let go of the anger that maybe would keep uh, your friendship apart. But what if they did all that, but you yourself was just unrepentant? You're glad you said what you did. You think it was right to say it. They needed to hear it. They deserved it. And you know what? You would do it again. While your friend has forgiven you and let go of the wrong that you've done, their work of forgiveness is incomplete, isn't it, right? The, the work of forgiveness has not been completed in your heart because while unrepentant, you can't really receive fully that forgiveness and grace without realizing and accepting your need for it. You're unchanged. You continue to say hurtful things to your friend and other people again and again because you are unrepentant. And even though your friend has forgiven you, that re relationship isn't fully reconciled. And you aren't really free of your selfish, hurtful, and callous way with words. You're not free to be your best self until you are repentant. 
Sometimes I think in a well-meaning effort to, to kind of praise and, and be thankful for God's amazing grace, we neglect the importance of repentance in being a forgiven people. Sometimes we, we, we sometimes relegate repentance, kind of changing our ways, really just kind of to a half-hearted attempt to express gratitude to God for forgiving us. Or, you know, God forgive us and, you know, we'll try to be a little better. And so we take God's costly grace and turn it into... As, as German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously called it, a cheap grace, a cheap grace. And so we go on doing whatever we want because God will forgive it anyway. Paul in Romans 6, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 addresses this error. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? See, the problem is, by, by being unrepentant and with this cheap grace, we stay in bondage, enslaved to our sin, even though we're, for, we're forgiven. And sin lives on and on and rules our lives. And we never experience fully the freedom of being who we were created to be. And our repentance is cheap, it's not serious, and it's fruitless. And our unprepared hearts cannot be transformed by God's forgiveness. So this is why God, John was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. To prepare the way, specifically by calling people to repentance. If they could repent, if the Jews would repent, then they could fully receive the work of forgiveness into their hearts and be born into a new life in the coming kingdom of God. This is also why John was a Baptist. This is also why John was a Baptist. Why? The, the ritual of baptism, going into the water and emerging, reminded the Jews of the story of the Exodus. When God first rescued the Jews out of slavery in Egypt by bringing them through the Red Sea, where they entered the waters as slaves, and they left the waters reborn into freedom as the people of God. And this is still the central story of Jewish identity today. Baptism is this dramatic reenactment of the story of God's rescue out of slavery into a new life of freedom as his people. And so why did John's followers need this dramatic rite like baptism to repent, you know, realizing their need for forgiveness? Let's go on the text to find out. This is verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The problem was for Israel was that they, at the time, were starting to begin to think that it was simply by being Jewish in the line of Abraham alone that that was what was going to save them. They forgot that being the people of God meant more than bloodlines. And so as they waited for the Messiah in the silence, they became complacent and even a little bit entitled. They began to think that, you know, they, as victims of Rome and every other empire, they had every excuse to not live obedient to God's values and plans because it wasn't their fault they were on the Roman rule. If God was really the true God and they were really his people, didn't they, you know, they deserved it. They deserved to get out of Roman rule and, 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 and be free from slavery. That was their right. That was where their hearts were at. So John is calling them to repent, to acknowledge their rebelliousness, their complicity with what was wrong with Israel and, frankly, with the rest of the world, and return to God. 
But as he's saying in this passage, it's not enough just to kind of feel bad and mope about it. Or it's, and it's not even enough just to confess it. John tells them in verse 8 to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And a more literal translation of this phrase is do the fruit of repentance, which is an amazing phrase. Repentance means returning to God, but it also must translate into action. Repentance means the actual change, an actual change in what we do. So you might be wondering, so what, is this, you know, so what does this mean for us, right? Do, I mean, do we need to just kind of now feel guilty? Is this kind of the guilty Sunday of Advent, you know, and feel bad and mope around after? That's not really the point here. But what should you do? If you're asking that question, you're in luck because the followers of John in this little speech had the exact same question, and they ask it, and we get some pretty direct answers. So let's look in verse 10. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts to share the one, share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And, the same soldiers, and then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So John here is getting really practical. He's answering their questions. What should we do? Verse 11, he says that we should share with those in need. If we have two shirts, we should give one away to one has none, and the same with food. And from one perspective, like, this is a pretty simple thing, right? It's very practical and makes sense. But think about our world today. I mean, is this a description of our world today? Is this, how far from reality is this ideal? We don't really live in this type of world, and neither did the Jews in the first century. Why? Because in a dog-eat-dog world, in a competitive world where resources are scarce, we got to cling on to what we can get. Because, A, you never know when you're going to need your second shirt. And, hey, B, you earned it. You earned it. It's mine. And that was life in the way of the Roman Empire. It's an economy of scarcity, a very scarce economy. But John here is saying that is not the way life works under the way of God, which is an economy of abundance through sharing and then it gets pretty interesting here. In verse 12, John addresses tax collectors. Tax collectors, as you may know, are Jews who bid money for the rights to have the job of, of, of collecting the oppressive taxes for the Roman Empire. And you might be wondering, why in the world would anyone pay money for this terrible job? It's like if you had to pay to be you know, an IRS agent. That seems kind of odd. But the way things worked in the empire was that tax collectors could collect what was due to Rome as well as a little bit more for yourselves. That's just sort of how it works. And of course, this was all with the backing of the Roman military if anyone refused. And so, you know, it was actually, it's a pretty profitable job. You were hated because you're basically a profiteering trader, but, you know, that's, you know, when you're under the Roman Empire, you got to do what you got to do. And John pauses and stop, says, stop that, stop that. Because that's not the way of God. That's, not, that's the way under Caesar. And John is calling them to a different way to repent to that. Then in verse 14, uh, there's this talk of soldiers. So they come to John asking, what should they do? I mean, think about a Roman soldier, right? Not only do they work for the Roman Empire, they're the ones who are enforcing through violence the authority of this oppressive empire. And a lot of scholars think that those soldiers in this passage specifically wouldn't actually be Roman citizens, but these were probably uh, locals, um, Jews, other people who were, worked as kind of hired, low-level uh, soldiers in the Roman militia. Because in, in here in the outskirts of the Roman Empire, you know, these soldiers could easily make a little extra money by falsely accusing someone of a crime and then just saying, hey, if you just pay me, you won't have to deal with the problem of this. 
And John tells them to stop doing this. It's not right. And note, he also adds, be content with your pay. Be content with your pay. What's going on here is that these low-level hired soldiers kind of didn't think they were really paid enough by the Roman Empire to do this dirty work. So extortion for a little extra money, it wasn't only justified. I mean, this was right. This was fair. And John is telling them to repent. Stop extorting people. Even though that's the way of life as a soldier in the outskirts of the Roman Empire, that's not the way things work in God's kingdom. Now, I want to, before I move on, I want to pause to point out something really clever with what John's saying here with, about, to the soldiers and the tax collectors. Note that he doesn't say that they should quit their jobs. It's very interesting, right? They're, they kind of have these really oppressive jobs. I mean, they're, 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 these are key cogs in the mechanism of the Roman Empire. But John says, keep your jobs. Keep doing it. But do it in a way that's different. Don't do it the way everyone else does it. Do it in the way of God. And this is important because in first century Israel, and even then today, it's not hard to see that the world is incredibly and deeply broken in deep, systemic ways. I mean, you could just take an easy look at the political or justice systems in our world. But John is saying this is no excuse to simply just going on with the ways of the world. You know, like, where was that? We have no other choice. We have to do this. Things are so broken. I mean, we have bills to pay, right? You know, not all of us are, are, are a Martin Luther King, right? What are we going to do? But John is saying you can find and you're called to find creative ways to resist and repent of the ways that the world works that's not the way of God. We're not to retreat from the world, but we're to redeem it from within. That's our call. John knows they had bills to pay, families to feed, but it's no excuse. And so he tells them, go on doing your jobs, but do it in a different way. And of course, this takes a sacrifice. Essentially, he's asking them to take a huge pay cut. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Why is it worth it? Because, as we saw last week, hope has arrived. The Messiah is on his way. God is starting the plan to change the way of the world. Let's look, continue in the text. Verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them, said, I baptize you with water, but there is one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John has to clarify, because this is so exciting that the Messiah is coming, that he's not the Messiah. But then he look at this. He ends with this last little bit, and it's a bit of a harsh passment of judgment. Verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. All right, this is kind of an odd ending. Notice that John ends the section by juxtaposing judgment and good news. Now, why is judgment good news? That's a really curious thing. We have to confess, too, we as kind of modern Americans, you know, you know, Westerns, we don't like passages about God's judgment, right? Their judgment passage are really awkward to us, and there's like a whole huge bunch of reasons why that's the case. We don't have nearly the time to get into, but one thing to see here that in this passage is that the judgment here is paired together with the freely available path of repentance and forgiveness, and this is not judgment for the sake of punishment, right? This isn't a punitive judgment. This judgment 
is for the sake of preserving what's good. Look at the image, a winnowing fork. You know, that's this, these forks, you, you pick up the hay and you throw it up in the air. And what's going on there is that, as the, or not the hay, the wheat, as the wheat goes up in the air, the wind blows away the chaff and what falls down to the ground is the heavier grain, which of course you use to make bread and food. So this image of judgment is a transformative one. It's one that takes the inedible wheat stalk and by stripping it of what's fruitless, it transforms it into grain, which is incredibly useful for making bread, for nutrition, for life. In the same way, in the same way, John is telling us we need to shed and throw off what is fruitless and useless in our own lives. It's chaff. It should be burned so that we may become life-giving just like bread as well. And this is necessary this judgment is necessary. Look back to Zechariah's song. We're going to look back. So this is back to last week, verse uh, Luke 1. When Zechariah sings about John's, uh, uh, God's coming rescue through Messiah, he calls out for God to do what? To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable him, to enable us to serve him without fear. Without fear in holiness and the righteousness before him all our days. So this is important because the purpose of being rescued, the purpose is to enable us to serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness. This is why, it's, this is where we discover it's so important to prepare for the arrival of Jesus through Christ, through repentance. Repentance is preparation because repentance is ultimately about freedom. It's about freedom, and not just any type of freedom, right? Like, this isn't like freedom to, for me to wear sweatpants whenever I want or play video games all day, eat bacon, whatever, right? Like, this isn't that type of freedom. I would love to wear sweatpants all day, every day, but that's not what this is about. This is about repentance. This is about freedom from, sla from slavery. This is about freedom to be, to be free to serve God, freedom to serve God. Freedom is not about doing whatever you want. That's actually another form of slavery, this is about being free of what hindered us to live and serve God as our king. This is about being free to, to, of being limited to only living our lives in the way the world works. And instead, being free to live in a new, new way of life. Under the just, right, holy, and beautiful, and loving reign of God. This is what repentance is about. It's not about sitting around feeling guilty you know, and feeling bad about yourself as if you could, like, beat yourself up enough to atone for all your sins and the sin of the world. That's not John the Baptist's job, and that's not our job. Of course, that's the Messiah's job, and, and we're going to get to that in a couple weeks. Repentance is about preparing for freedom, and this is good news. This is why it ends with good news. For the Jews, repentance is freedom from the ways of Rome, from hoarding, from using power to steal and extort from others. It, and for us, repentance is about freedom from the ways of our world, our Rome, our empires today. And our culture is very powerful. Our culture, both globally and locally, we have our own culture here in the Silicon Valley. We have, we have ways of living, the ways the world works, which are at direct conflict with the, with the ways of the kingdom. We need to repent as well. We need to repent from these lies. Even though it's not the way of God, we buy into the lie every day. I do. We all do. Into the way of proving our self-worth, that we're meaningful, worthy people to live through our wealth, through maximizing our earning potential. Um, you know, that's how we kind of prove that we are worthy and meaningful people and we legitimately should exist, right? We, we think if we have more money that that should do that. And so earning money becomes a priority. We buy into the lies of social media. 
that our digital image of ourselves that we put out there is more important than the image of God in us. We bind to that lie. We bind to the lie, and it's very subtle, that certain groups of people are better at things than other groups of people. We do. We bind to that lie. We buy into the lie that newer and faster is always better all the time. We buy into the lie that we're entitled to things, that because of whatever, you know, whatever thing you want to throw in there, we deserve to have a certain standard of living, a certain type of job, a certain type of community, a certain type of church, a certain type of lifestyle. We buy into these lies. We buy into the lie that what we consume, what we own, what we buy, what we eat, what we experience, everything, you know, everything, including, including our spiritual lives, are there to meet our needs first. We bind to the lie that we should always and only follow your passions and dreams because you need to do what makes you happy. That's a lie we buy into. And the thing is, these lies enslave us. We become slaves to them. And worse, they hinder us from being free to serve God. So we need to repent of these things and return to God instead so we can be free. And that is good news. Because the God we're being freed to serve is a good, he's a good ruler. He's a good God. He wants good things for all of us, for all people. We serve a God who doesn't seek to even be served, but to serve himself. We serve a God who doesn't want our sacrifice. He wants to sacrifice himself for our sakes. We serve a God that's willing to die for us so that we and the world might have life. That is who we are being free to serve, and that is good news. And this all begins, this step to freedom begins by the preparation of repentance. Repentance is the first step to this freedom. Repentance is being prepared for forgiveness. Malachi 7, uh, 3, 7. So this is the end of that prophecy that we looked at last week about the John the Baptist. God says, return to me and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. So when we repent of the ways the world we bond to, we're returning to God. And he will return to us. And he is coming. That is what Advent is about. God is coming. Advent is near. So as we finish this morning, we're going to take a few moments to take this time and begin this step of preparation of the doing, the doing of repentance. The band's going to come up. And as they play and create a space for us to reflect and think I'd like you to take a moment and just reflect on something God is calling you to repent of. Something, some part of the way the world works, of the empire that controls the way you live. Just some lie that you've bought into that you now recognize or God is bringing you to recognize and repent of. And as that comes to mind, there's a card in your bulletin. And this is just for you. This is just for you. We invite you to write it down, whatever that is. Or if, you, if this doesn't come up now in, in this coming week, write it down as a step of repentance, of recognizing what it is. But then we'd also invite you, after you've written that thing down, turn the card to the other side. Turn the card to the other side. Because repentance isn't just not doing the bad things. It's turning towards God. It's returning to God, towards freedom. So on the other side, write down a new way that you can now be free to live in a way of the kingdom of God, something that you can do to do the fruit of repentance. This might be something just as simple as calling someone up to say you're sorry for something you did or said. It might be just as simple as inviting someone over for dinner who's not like you to show hospitality. It might be 
the missional gift guide. It might be sharing, being generous to the people who have needs, sharing your honest excess with someone who is in need instead of keeping it for yourselves. It might be doing something inconvenient for someone because you represent that you value other people's needs over your own. It might simply be just to slow down and take a rest. Whatever it is, write that down in your card. And hold this card with you. We just put it, put, it, put it on your car dash, put it in your pocket, put it in your wallet, anywhere that it can remind you that to prepare for the way of the Lord is to do the fruits of repentance. Because as we wait in Advent, the eager anticipation of the coming of the kingdom of God, repentance is how we prepare for Jesus' arrival. Repentance is how we experience the work of being forgiven by God as a people. And repentance is what will set you free. So it is truly, truly good news. So as the band plays, I invite you to reflect with this card and take it with you through the week.